morning, Illuminate. Happy Palm Sunday to you. As Charlie said, this is like a big week, right? The next weekend between uh, Friday and Sunday, we've got five services going. Good Friday service at 6 o'clock, and then an Easter Eve service at 5, and then three on Easter Sunday, 8, 9, 30, and 11. You've got that little invite there uh, on the seat there somewhere around you that's got a QR code on it. You can hit that QR code as well. And it's got a bunch of shareable stuff for you on social media as well as, as you know, we've, we've said it before, um, don't say someone's no for them. You never know what God is doing behind the scenes just to kind of till the soil to get somebody ready to say yes to your invitation to join you and to hear, for some people perhaps, to hear the message of Jesus for the very first time. God just seems to use these kinds of things in special ways in people's lives where his voice is, is louder than it normally would be. So I want to encourage you all uh, with that. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, we've, we're known as a church, thanks to you guys, for our warmth and our hospitality. The entire campus is going to be something really special that day. I had a buddy uh, email me this week and was really excited about the beer tent. Um, <laughs> I was like, well, you know, that's kind of a TPC, uh, whole number 16 kind of thing, you know? And then I started thinking about it. That might be a good fundraiser, you know? <laughs> we could pay off this building, you know? That would be a weird headline, though. North Scottsdale Church pays off building with a liquor license. You know, that just wouldn't, that wouldn't go well. But it's going to be amazing next week, guys. It's going to be something that I know God is going to use to not only impact your life, but the lives of the people around you. Of course, today is the beginning of the Passion Week, and I love that description because in a word, that sums up the heart of Jesus, passion. Jesus is passionate about people. This is the reason why he came into the world. So what we're going to do this morning is uh, a little bit different. We're going to go backwards. We're going to look at some specific events that took place before Jesus rides into Jerusalem because these are the events that really set the stage to really reveal who Jesus is and what he came to do. Uh, it might surprise you to know that the gospel writers spend about one-third of their time focusing on the last seven days of Jesus' life. I mean, there's a lot of content. There's a lot of things they could write, but having had a front row seat to the life of Jesus, when they write their biographies of his life, they spend a lot of time on this last week, and for good reason. So, here's where we're going to start. We're going to examine a couple of very specific events. I said last week that the authors of the Bible wasted no ink and no paper. In the narrative, Every detail is important. It's there for a reason because it sets up our understanding of who Jesus is. That's why we're going to go backwards a little bit and we're going to see two specific events that took place before Jesus rides into town. So with that, we're going to jump right into it. Luke chapter 19, beginning with verse 41. It says, and when he, Jesus, drew near, he's drawing near to the city of Jerusalem, he sees the city and he cries. He weeps. And here's what he says, would that you, even you, God's people, the nation of Israel, chosen by God, called by God, even you, if you had known on this day, the day that I'm arriving, the things that make for peace. So he's speaking to the heart because it's the desire of every human heart to be at peace. 
But the kind of peace the people wanted and the kind of peace Jesus provided are two very different things as we'll see in a moment. But now, he says, they're hidden from your eyes. Verse 43, Jesus prophesies. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you. They will surround you, hem you in on every side, and they're going to tear you down to the ground. You and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in the city. It's going to be completely destroyed. Because you did not know the time. You didn't understand the time of your visitation. What visitation? Jesus is talking about himself. So before he approaches the city, he looks out and he begins to cry knowing ultimately that the people are going to reject him. They want peace, but it's a different kind of peace than what Jesus actually brings, and they will reject him for it. Isn't it interesting how um, a small group of people can become so vocal and have such crazy influence over the masses? You ever notice that? This is what happens to Jesus, nothing new. There will be false charges made against him. He'll be put on trial. False witnesses, people will lie about him. It's a vocal minority, but they are very loud and very persuasive. And Jesus will be delivered up to be crucified. The religious leaders hate him. Some of the Romans think that he might be a threat to them. But Jesus says, I know that you have a need for peace, but the kind of peace I bring to you is very different than the kind that you actually desire. Now, what's interesting about this prophecy is that we know looking back, just a few decades later, it actually comes to pass because the Romans come into town and they raise the city. It's total devastation. It's unrecognizable. The city is in chaos. Essentially, the Romans wage war. And when the Romans wage war, <laughs> it's not going to be good for you. One of the most powerful empires the world has ever known. Let's talk about war for a second. It's hard to avoid the reality of the human condition on display right now. <laughs> right? There is war. It's like, you, it's like even if you try to avoid it, there's some feed, some information that's coming at you. Perhaps you've seen the images of war. And people are asking the question, and it is a fair question, and it's the right question, actually. The question is this. Where is God? Where is God in the midst of war? Well, you know, the Bible is very straightforward. Um, it's very candid in how it speaks to what we observe around us. And it tells us that hostility exists because men and women have chosen to rebel against God. You see, if I can make peace with God first and foremost, then you know what's going to come out of me? Strong desire to have peace with others. But if I don't have this kind of peace with the God who created me, I'm not going to be super motivated to display peace toward others consistently for sure. And so that's why the world is so jacked up. And that's what the Bible refers to as sin. 
Simply stated, it's rebelliousness toward God, wanting to do our own thing apart from God, and so the world is a mess because of that. But let's speak specifically to the heart of God right now. Well, what's interesting is that what we learn from Jesus is that he is literally God in the flesh. So the nature, the character, the attributes of God we see displayed through Jesus. So when Jesus rides into town and he says, I can bring you peace, but it's the kind of peace that's going to put your heart and mind at ease because here's the reality of the situation. You're engaged in a battle right now. There is a war. Let me say that to you again. There is a war that you're engaged in. Now, if you think you're not, then you've already lost that war because there is a spiritual war. There is a spiritual battle for your soul. Because the Bible's very clear in telling us that everybody spends somewhere for an eternity. And every human has had that thought. What creeps in their head is like, is there something more? What happens when I die? What's next? The Bible says that God has implanted eternity within the human heart. Where do you think you get that sense of what's next? That is from God. And so what happens is Jesus is about to come on the scene and he says, I'm, I'm a bringer of peace. But the people wanted political peace. They wanted to be free from the shackles of Roman authority and government. And Jesus says, nah, I could set you free from Roman authority. I have that power. But you would still be stuck in your sin. And you would be a slave to that. And you would lose the war for your soul. Because there's actually a larger war that takes place every day. And that's the war that I came to conquer and to fight on your behalf. So there's a lot going on here behind the scenes as Jesus approaches this city. He sees the heart of the people lost, his heart. He weeps. It is the heart of God. There is a second thing that happens just before Jesus enters the city, and it's found in Matthew chapter 20, verse 29. As, as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd is following Jesus. Because remember, Jesus is healing people, he's feeding people, and a lot of people are down for the free food, and they're down for the show, and he's got this big entourage. Not everybody in this crowd understands exactly who he is, but they're down for the show, and so there's this big crowd that surrounds him. Verse 30, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they began to shout, Lord, have mercy on us. And then they describe him like this, son of David. That's super important, and I'll tell you why in a second. So the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be, be, to be silent. It's like, Jesus doesn't have time for you, you know? It's like, he's important. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And then Jesus stops, calls them and says, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, <laughs> let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touches their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and they followed him. So Jesus has this big crowd with him entering the city. Along the way, two blind men and they say, have mercy on us. And then they describe him as being the son of David. That's big. Here's why. That is actually a title of a forthcoming Messiah king. 
See, I mentioned this last two weeks. When Matthew begins his biography of the life of Jesus, Matthew spent time with Jesus. He says, now I gotta, I gotta write and tell you about who this guy is. Super unique. He begins by saying, Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. To a good God-fearing Jew that understand their Old Testament, immediately they're like, oh, wait a minute. We know that the Messiah is going to be an ancestor of Abraham. Remember Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3? It was first promised, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So he's from the line of Abraham. Jesus is the one that will be a blessing to all families on earth. But he will also be a king from the line of David. That is your Messiah King. So what these two blind men say is, Jesus, you are the Messiah King. You are the son of David. You are the one that, that the prophets told us about. And here's what's really remarkable. Jesus is like, that's right. Yep. I am your king. So what can your king do for you? No doubt there are people who are like, whoa. Okay, we've seen this play out before because there were times when Jesus would heal and feed people and perform all these miracles, and Jesus would be like, shh, don't tell anybody just yet. In fact, at one point, Jesus is doing some crazy supernatural stuff, and the people are like, oh, we want you to be our king now, and they try to force him to be their king. And Jesus is like, no, 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 not yet, not yet, not yet. It's not my time. And he kind of slips away through the crowd. But now he comes on, and he's like, you call me son of David? I hear you. That's exactly right. I am the Messiah King. Now, what can your king do for you? This is really powerful. Now, remember, this is on the way. So if, if you've been a follower of Jesus, you kind of see him be low-key king, you know what I mean? Like, like, just downplay it a little bit, but not anymore. He's fully, openly declaring himself as the king of the Jews and more. So, with this, Jesus begins what will ultimately lead to his death march. Matthew chapter 21. Here's how it starts. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. Now, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So, this is cool because... At some point in the next few days, it's really going to seem like events are completely and totally out of control. <laughs> but Jesus is actually in control of every single detail because many of these details that we're going to read about were actually foretold hundreds of years earlier. In other words, everything is going exactly according to plan, so much so that Jesus is in control of his transportation into the city. Now, Bethphage was very close to another little village called Bethany, almost right next to each other. Now, Bethany we're very familiar with. Jesus knew that town really well because two of his friends, Mary and Martha, were from there, but also this guy named Lazarus, another very good friend of Jesus whom Jesus raises from the dead. So Jesus says, hey, you guys go ahead into the town and you know, you're, you're going to find a, a donkey and a colt. Untie them, bring them to me. And if anybody hassles you, like, hey, why are you taking my animals? You, know, you just tell them that I need them. No problem for you. And all of this makes perfect sense because in a very small town, Jesus raises a man from the dead Everybody in that town knows about Jesus of Nazareth. 
everybody knows about Jesus in a small town with that kind of miracle. So the guys roll in, they grab the donkey, and the owner might be going, hey, what are you guys doing taking my animals? And he says, oh, well, the Lord needs them. Oh, wait, the Lord needs them? Jesus, take all my animals. You know, it's like, what a privilege, you know? The king is going to ride on one of, my, one of my donkeys? Absolutely. So this is that all makes perfect sense. Jesus says, this is going to be no problem for you. Um, but more to the point, this is actually going to take place because the prophets speaking on behalf of God actually said it was going to come down like this. Oh, and they spoke about 500 years earlier, specifically this prophet named Zechariah. Verse 4, this took place to fulfill. See, why do you, why, why do you think the author would, con- would include such a crazy weird detail like Jesus' mode of transportation to convince you that Jesus is who he said he was, to convince you that there is nothing like this in all of human history of literature. There's nothing like the Bible, just in terms of fulfilled prophecy alone, right? This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, and again, this is the prophet Zechariah, say to the daughter of Zion, which is another way of saying Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Well, how are we gonna recognize him? Because he's gonna be coming to you in humility. Oh, and here's his ride, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. All right, so very important for us to picture the scene um, as we read the text. Jesus arrives on this humble creature, a donkey. Now, some of you may know that in times of war, kings would ride into town on horses, specifically white stallions. White stallion, that was like the ultimate war horse. So if a king wanted to flex and show his military might, he's going to ride in on one of those beasts. But in times of peace, if the king wanted to communicate, hey, I'm not just a man of war, but I'm also a man of peace, then he's going to come riding in on a lowly donkey. This is why, you know, a thousand years earlier, King Solomon, when he's inaugurated, he rides into town also on a donkey. Hey, I come and I bring peace. So I shared it this way in the email I sent out this week. Picture donkey from the movie Shrek, right? Just super affable, easygoing, humble, non-threatening. What kind of king chooses that as his ride? One who is very thoughtful and one who wants to communicate something very specific. I'm coming to you in humility. See, this is one of the many beautiful things about Christianity. It promotes a salvation through humility. And the king exemplifies this. So, uh, having said that, let me say this. Um, Jesus is humble, but in no way is he modest. He's humble, but he's not modest. He knows exactly who he is. Uh, it's as if he says, you all know that and can see that I'm coming to you in peace on this humble little creature. And uh, I have a crown that I will be wearing, but my crown is not made of gold 
and it has no jewels. Instead, I will be wearing a crown of thorns. In other words, I am a king. I know exactly who I am and why I came. And I'm not riding into town as if to say, hey, if you guys want me to be your king, then I guess I will. <laughs> I mean, if you really think so, then all right. There's none of that. This is a straight-up declaration. I am the king. I'm coming to you in humility, but I am absolutely resolute about my mission. And some of the people will accept this. Many will not. Verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And here he comes. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. I read an interesting uh, comment from one, of the, uh, one of the commentaries that I was studying from. It said that back in the day, this is something people would do in order to sort of fanboy over someone back in the day. They would take off their outer garment and place it in front of someone who was like celebrity, right? Popular, and then that person would walk across their garment, and then they would take that garment, and it would be like they would frame it. You know what I mean? It would be something really special. It was like a signed jersey back in the day. It would be something, be something very sacred to them. So they were laid out, and as Jesus walks across, then they pick up their garments like, oh, look at this. Hey, this was something that, 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 that Jesus ride stepped on when he came into Jerusalem. You know, so this gives you a glimpse into how popular he is with some of the people. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna, look at this, to the son of David. They know exactly what they're saying. People are recognizing him as the Messiah King. Hosanna means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth, of Galilee. City's on fire. So many are people there. Um, you know, it's Holy Week, right? And, and, and the city swells in population, and some of the people from out of town are like, wait a minute, who is this guy? Well, this guy's a prophet for sure. He's from Nazareth of Galilee. And it's like the city is gaslit. Um, and all of that changes in an instant because Jesus doesn't care about popularity. In fact, He's, gonna, he's about to ruin it for himself so, because what he does is this. So this is the very next thing he does, okay? He rides into town. All, all the people are like, this is it, this is it. And then he takes that donkey and parks it in front of the temple. He gets off and he walks up to the temple. And verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple. It's the very next verse. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So you, know, you got to picture the seat, you know. Jesus doesn't care about popularity. He comes right and rolls up to the temple, and he's like, he, he's, he's getting a little violent. You know, it's like he's getting angry. But this is a righteous anger because there are people who are lining their pockets off of the sincere desire of others to connect with God. The temple was a place where people met with God, and there were people there who were lining their pockets off of it. And Jesus says, 
I'm not having it. And here's why. Notice he says, he quotes the Old Testament, and he says, this is my house. This is my house. Now, everybody understood that the temple belonged to God, and Jesus is like, that's right. That's what I'm saying. I'm sent from God. I am the son of God. And this is a family thing. And this is my house, too. So all of these things are going on, man, before Jesus, you know, Jesus just arriving into town. So it's really interesting because today there are a lot of people who want to dismiss the way in which Jesus not only presents himself, but what he says about himself. So they limit. You know, let's let Jesus speak for himself. And when we do that, he's shouting something. So a lot of people in our time, they'll say something like, you know, I really value Jesus because he was such a good moral teacher. No. I'm sorry. No. Not enough. No disrespect. You don't have a clue as to who Jesus is. I really value Jesus because, you know, uh, he said some profound things. Well, that's very true. He said the most profound things ever uttered. But he's arriving as a king in humility. And essentially what he's saying is, here's what I'm requiring of you. Total surrender. Total surrender of your heart. Because that's actually how we're going to lead this revolution. You all want to be set free from Roman rule. I hear that. But I can do that, and you'd still be enslaved to your sin, and you would lose the war that you're in right now over your soul, and that's actually a bigger battle. You just don't realize it. So it's not so much about me overthrowing the Roman Empire and restoring Israel to its former place of glory. It's about me transforming your heart. And so in order to do that, it's going to be total surrender on your part. So here, you're only left with one of two options, okay? You're either going to crown me or you're going to kill me. There's no middle ground. It's not enough for you to say, good moral teacher. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm living a better, a better life. I'm becoming a better person because of Jesus. Mm-mm. That's not it. You either crown me or you kill me. There's no middle ground. So all, all of this is coming out now in these interactions that Jesus is having, and the crowd is going to turn very quickly on Jesus, as you'll see, because that's not really what they wanted. They didn't want any personal change. Um, they wanted him to do a different kind of work and bring a different kind of peace. It's been said that sin comes about when the servant puts himself or herself in the place of the king, but salvation comes when the king puts himself in the place of a servant. What kind of king does that? The kind of king that chooses his ride very carefully. Only Christianity promotes a salvation through Humility, and it's quite beautiful. So there were some in the crowd who certainly wanted to receive temporal benefits from Jesus and nothing more. And that's true today. That's true even, I think, within the Christian community sometimes at large. Uh, people say, I'm following Jesus um, for what he can give me here and now. And, and, and that would be good health. Um, that would be financial prosperity and other good tempor temporal benefits um, that keep me secure and safe. That's, that's why uh, I have chosen to follow Jesus. Um, if you're following Jesus only for temporal benefits he can give you, your faith is going to be destroyed. It's only a matter of time. Because what happens when you get cancer? What happens when what you have, you no longer have, your stuff is taken away? 
then what? If you follow Jesus only for the temporal benefits, your faith will be destroyed. So, question, um, why do you follow Jesus? Uh, well, to make me a better person. Well, that probably does need to happen for all of us, but that's not why Jesus came. Uh, you know, I've heard people say, well, I fo I'm following Jesus so that he can get me a godly spouse. That's cool, that's good, that's legitimate. That's not why Jesus came. Um, I follow Jesus because I've got some pain in my past that I need to be healed from. I get it. Jesus can do that. That's not the primary reason why he came. Jesus came as a king to fight your largest battle, whether you know it exists or not. And that is the battle that you have with sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin leads to death. So when Jesus dies on the cross, he's paying your wage. He's taking what you deserve on himself, paying the debt that you owe. In return, you get eternal life. That's a really good deal for you and me. So let me ask you, why do you follow Jesus? I can tell you that for me, I follow Jesus because I believe that he is who he said he is, who he says he is. He is the king, the anointed one, the fulfillment of hundreds of years worth of prophecy. Uh, he died for my sins, rose from the grave, and he's coming back again in power and glory to reign over all. So when I face distress or persecution or anxiety, health issues, it, one day uh, it'll be death itself. It's okay because I win. I win because I've chosen to follow the king of kings. By the way, there is one other time in scripture where palm branches are associated with Jesus, and it's found in the very last book of the Bible, Revelation. Let me read it to you, chapter seven. John says, after this I looked, and behold, there was a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, God is forming this beautiful family that is incredibly diverse, standing before the throne, before the Lamb. What is the great unifier of all humanity? We are all sinners separated from God. The great equalizer of humanity is that we are all exposed as sinners and in need of a savior. Some of humanity will bend the knee in full admission of that reality. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and they're crying out with a loud voice, salvation has already come. It's not Hosanna save us, it's we've been saved. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. By the way, Jesus has another form of transportation as well. You know what it is? It ain't no donkey. When he returns, he's riding a white stallion because what he's declaring is, I'm here to wage war against sin and death, and I win. Who's with me? So I'm going to have you bow your heads and close your eyes. As always, this is the most important time, part of our time together. So certainly there are some in the room Maybe you're hearing this for the first time. Let me just say I'm so thankful that you're here. You are not here 
by accident. The Spirit of God is speaking to you. That's what that nudging is. Can I encourage you to give in? Can I encourage you to explore the life that you've always wanted? You win by surrendering. (laughs) You win by surrendering. And then for those... Maybe you've been far from God. Maybe it's, it's neither a crown nor it's the kill, but it's, it's some middle ground. Jesus really didn't leave any room for that. And that's probably the reason why it's one step forward and two steps back. It's surrender. So Father, as always, we ask that your spirit would speak to every heart in the room. And God, as we begin this week that is so well described as the passion week because we see the passionate heart of Jesus as he weeps over the lostness of the people but yet he came to fix that to fight that war that is the ultimate battle already won on our behalf Father we pray for those whom you're nudging their hearts are opening up Father, continue to speak to them. For those of us that we've known and heard these things for a while, but we haven't stepped into that place of total surrender, Lord, would you help us with that even now? Because in the end, it's all about Jesus. It's all about lifting his name up and making him known and famous for who he is and what he's done. We ask it and pray it in his name. Son of David, our Messiah King, Jesus Christ, and God's people said, Amen.